Ladies and gentlemen, it is a long journey to this moment. Thank you so much. I am naturally indebted to truly, truly great. And the Oscar goes to. Hello and welcome to Thank the Academy, the podcast where we talk about every Academy Award-winning Best Picture film in order. We're your hosts, Zach and Kristen, and that's Kayla, our producer. Howdy! Da, 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 da. Showtime! Is that how you want to start? <laughs> yeah, we're here. We're back. Welcome all to the twenty-third episode, discussing, of course the 23rd Academy Awards, and the 23rd Best Picture winner, All About Eve. That's what this episode's all about. Yep. All about it. (laughs) All about, all about Eve. Somebody wrote a book about that with that title. All about, all about Eve. (laughs) Yeah. One of these actors' children. Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) So at the beginning of every episode... We like to discuss the news about Penny. A pup date. Penny is our little cavalier. She is three years old. She's a fluff ball. Uh, She desperately needs a trim. Yeah. I feel like we say that all the time, though. Well, she always does. (laughs) But Penny's been doing good. We're all home. We've been chilling out. Back to life as usual. Yeah. She's excited that we're all back together. Yeah. She's in good spirits, which is nice. Unlike somebody who was not in good spirits. Oh, I was in fine spirits. I just wasn't well. <laughs> <laughs> I was recently sick. And it was so frustrating because I got sick and I immediately got a COVID test, came back negative, And I was like, okay. So I like stayed in bed for a couple of days. And then my throat was just so, 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 so sore. So after like three days of bed rest, I went to the doctor and got a strep test and another COVID test. And like, I've been self-isolating, like all this stuff, and everything came back negative. So I didn't have strep. I don't have COVID, nothing like that. And the doctor goes to me. She's like, well, great news. Your tests all came back negative. You're just regular sick. I was like, She probably hasn't had somebody regular sick, like, in a year. She's probably so excited. I was like, okay, but I feel terrible. So, like, what can you do for me? Wow, you just have germs. She was like, uh, nothing. You can take ibuprofen and gargle salt water. And yeah, it's just like a seasonal cold or something. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, I was sick for like five days from this. All anyways, that to say. <laughs> this is not an update about me. <laughs> Penny is funny when we're sick or have some ailment of some kind because she can sense it immediately. Yeah. And she like wants to take care. She's always coming around, making sure we're okay. Yeah, she's so cute. Well, and it was so sad because the first day that I woke up really sick, we immediately separated and did like COVID precautions because I was like, of course I would get the Delta variant. <laughs> and so like I wasn't allowed to see her. We like kept her away and she kept like scratching at the door and trying to come in and all this stuff. And so finally, once we figured out I was just sick, she would spend time with me and she was so cute because like I would be sleeping and like in a really like bad mental state, you know, kind of like woozy or whatever. And she would just lean her nose into me and give me a little nudge and like stand over me and just look down at me. And I'm like, hi, honey, I'm okay. (laughs) And as soon as she like could tell that I was like coherent, she would like nuzzle into me and like make a little ball against my side and just sleep with me for a while. It was so comforting. It was nice that she cared so much about me. Hmm. Well, she had just gotten us all back together, so she was worried that <laughs> yeah, something was going to change again. <laughs> but she's so sweet when you're sick. And it's nice because having a dog around, you're like, oh, I'm not worried about getting you sick. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'll be as close to you as I want. Yeah. Good job, Penny. Yeah. You're a good girl. Shall we jump into this film? All about this film? Yeah. Well, why don't you give us a little uh, synopsis before we get started? All righty. Eve Harrington wins a prestigious award for her acting in a new show on Broadway. The story then rewinds back to the beginning. Eve stands outside the stage door hoping to meet her idol, Margot Channing, a popular theater actress aging out of the ingenue type. After their chance meeting, arranged by Margot's friend Karen, 
Eve makes herself available to Margot in every way she can, modeling her life after hers, becoming indispensable to her, until she becomes Margot's understudy and through some tricky scheduling and trickery, goes on for her, alerting the press who see her perform and finally gaining the audience she's always dreamed of. Eve manipulates her way into being cast in the next big play as the lead character, finally getting to be Margot and winning the award from the beginning of the film. When she gets back to her room, a young wannabe actress is waiting for her, ready to make herself available to her the way she did for Margot. What goes around comes around. I loved this film. Yeah, it was really fun. Yeah, it's been a long time since we've watched a film that I'm like, oh my gosh, that was so good. But this one was so great. And I had never seen this before. So this was a new watch for me. And to be honest, I didn't know really anything about this except for what I had heard like referred to like because you know I've worked in the theater for a long time and so well, and it's a very classic like tropey yeah, story nowadays and, yeah so I like knew the concept and I knew like you know young woman like m- does all these tricky things to like take over the older woman's spot yeah but I like didn't really understand it was so good it's like a mystery it's dark it was well and oh. not news to the general public i know who, i'm sorry of course, <laughs> the most nominated film of all time yeah i just like thought this was a really cool film so yeah I was and really it still excited. holds up i mean it felt very relevant there was nothing like objectionable about yeah. it nothing no like off-color humor or anything that has like gone out of class or style yeah to me this is like quintessential old film like if I was gonna say like oh yeah I like old films this is the one I would point to as like classic stars you know black and white classic story classic writer director studio all this stuff like just the perfect cacophony of things all together yeah and it has so many people in it that are like at the heights or just starting their careers mm-hmm. it just is a mix of so many like classic important hollywood things all coming to a head and like being successful yeah so do you want to jump into the ceremony right so let's jump into it uh today we are talking about the 23rd academy awards and best picture winner all about eve duh um this ceremony was held <laughs> sorry <laughs> i don't know i've got a lot of attitude today <laughs> you've got some betty davis I was spunk say, in you i have been researching betty davis and i got a lot of things going on in my head so i guess so anyways this ceremony was held on march 29th 1951 at the rko pantages theater mm-hmm. which is where it was last year and so they're kind of going to hold on to this trend for a while since they can't win one they might as well host them yeah <laughs> RKO, that RKO. Is. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? Yeah, you're right. This ceremony is hosted by Fred Astaire, who ah. we did a deep dive into last week. Yeah, so he got his uh, honorary award last week, and now they are honoring him again <laughs> by hosting the ceremony. As we talked about last week, his career never ends. And so he has lots of different facets. In He's which... just in his like 10th of 25 <laughs> retirements. <laughs> Exactly. Um, As you kind of mentioned already, this ceremony, All About Eve, receives 14 nominations for all kinds of awards, which is currently the record. And it beat the previous record of 13 nominations for Gone with the Wind. And of course, this has been surpassed now. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Well, it's not surpassed, but tied Mm -hmm. by Titanic. Yes. Exactly. But to this point, this is the record-breaking film. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has the most nominations at this point. Also this year, Sunset Boulevard becomes the second film to have all four actors nominated in four acting categories, but no wins. Mm. We talked about this um, several years ago in 1936. My Man Godfrey did the same thing. And you want to know something crazy? Hmm. The next time that this happens, four actors nominated in the four acting categories, nobody wins, is American Hustle. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Every other time, someone will win. But Mm. it doesn't happen again where nobody wins until American Hustle. Wow. I could not believe that. Well, and what's interesting about that, too, is his previous film to that, he also got all four of his actors nominated. Right. And only Jennifer Lawrence won for that one. Yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because both times Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper were nominated. But Bradley Cooper (laughs) just can't get that win. Bradley Cooper. (laughs) I mean, he does not deserve an Academy Award acting win. Yeah. He's not that good. No, I know. Sorry if you like Bradley Cooper. This is not the podcast to come to for that. (laughs) 
Oh, but interesting thing about Sunset Boulevard, because it has very similar themes to this film Mm. with like an aging woman. And, you know, it's sort of about the entertainment industry a little bit. It's about Hollywood and L.A. And like it just didn't do very well compared to this one. Yeah, it's kind of strange how that happens, but that's just the way it is, I guess. The other thing that's really interesting about the acting awards this year is that All About Eve becomes the second film after Mrs. Miniver to receive five acting nominations. Right. But what I think is interesting is that for this year, for this film, we have two uh, nominations from All About Eve for Best Actress and two for Best Supporting Actress and then one for Best Supporting Actor. Yeah. So like in those categories, this film dominated. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's also the first film with two Best Actress nominations. Mm -hmm. And to this day, it remains the only film to have four actresses nominated for those positions. Wow. And, of course, previous um, movies with two Best Actors nominated. One is Going My Way. Of course, that actor was nominated for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor (laughs) in the same year. And then Bing Crosby. Mm -hmm. And then... Three acting nominations <laughs> for Mutiny on the Bounty for Best Actor, of course, before, before the supporting, supporting category was invented. Yeah, well, and since we're talking about acting, and this film is a very, very acting central film, I wanted to talk about our leading lady, Betty Davis. Mm-hmm. I was just so intrigued by her performance in this film, and I haven't seen very many of her movies up to this point. Yeah. And so I was just enamored by her, and she is a questionable character in Hollywood history. You know, I respect so much about her career and her impact on Hollywood. And you have to take her with a grain of salt because like all people, she's flawed in a lot of ways. uh, And she's not like this perfect Hollywood picture, but I think she's a fighter. Just as I start off this little segment, I just want to say that sometimes only bad girls make history. So Hmm. that's what we're talking about today. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, what we were talking in prep for this episode that like she did a lot of like really interesting and amazing things, especially for women in Hollywood. Right. But mostly women in Hollywood did not like her. No. I mean, a lot of Hollywood didn't like her. Yeah. Just in general. You know, I was thinking about how I want to talk about this because part of the reasons that people didn't like her are for reasons that I think she was being an extremely feminist trailblazing person. She decided that she deserved certain things and she would fight for them. She wouldn't just lay down and take the scripts that were handed to her. And I mean, all the studios are run by men. And a lot of the contracts at this time dictated that the actors and actresses were at the whim of the studio heads and the producers and the directors. And she was one of the first people to fight back and say, no, I'm not going to do films and roles that go against things I want to do that are not helpful to my career. I want to take control of my career. And a lot of women ended up following suit after her because of the things that she started. And of course, she got called all kinds of terrible things because of these things she tried to start. It's also really interesting because on the flip side of that, she has one of the longest standing ever contracts in a studio system. Mm -hmm. She was with Warner Brothers for 18 years. Yeah. For somebody who butted up against the studio system for so many of those years, Mm -hmm. it's interesting Because that's like one of the longest with one studio for one actor ever. Yeah. Well, and she and Jack Warner were at it like all the time. Yeah. So, but she was born on April 5th, 1908. In 1926, she was 18 and she saw a production of Henrik Ibsen's The Wild Duck, which is one of my Uh, favorite plays. It's very good. Yeah. With Blanche Yurka and Peg and Twistle. And she, in her memoirs, Davis, that is, recalled, quote, the reason I wanted to go into theater was because of an actress named Peg and Twistle. She Absolutely love this performance. She auditioned for admission into Eva La Gallienne's Manhattan Civic Repertory, but she was rejected. And they described her attitude at the time as, quote, insincere and frivolous. Hmm. She then auditioned for George Cukor's Stock Theater Company in Rochester, New York. Although he was not super impressed with her audition, he gave her her first paid acting assignment uh, for one week playing the part of a chorus girl in the play Broadway. Oh. In 1929, um, she was actually chosen by Blanche Yurka, the person that she was so enamored with before, to play Hedwig in The Wild Duck. And so she just thought this was the best thing that could ever happen to her. She performed in Philadelphia, Washington, Boston, and finally made her Broadway debut in 1929 in the play Broken Dishes and then followed it up with Solid South, another play. 
So then in 1930, she was 22 and she decided to go to Hollywood to test for Universal Studios. She later on recounted that she was very surprised when she got to the studio because there was nobody there to meet her when she got there. And (laughs) (laughs) a studio employee was actually waiting for her, but he left because he said later on that he didn't see anyone who looked like an actress. Mm. And so he like dismissed her and left. She failed her first screen test. But they kept her around. They used her in a couple other screen tests for other actors. In 1971, she did an interview with Dick Cavett, and she talked about this experience saying, quote, I was the most Yankeeist, most modern virgin who ever walked the earth. And that was Boy. as they were using her for a test for other men. Yeah. <laughs> a year later, they gave her a second test um, for the film uh, House Divided in 1931. She went to this audition dressed in a very ill-fitting dress with a very low neckline and she was immediately rebuffed by director William Wyler who very loudly commented to everyone who was there quote what do you think of these dames who show their chests and think they can just get jobs quote (laughs) which is really funny because they go on to work together and you know have a passionate love and all this stuff but at the time this was her first like real test Carl Emley the head of Universal Studios considered terminating her employment with them but the cinematographer Carl Frund told him that she had lovely eyes and she would be good in the film Bad Sister, which was coming out in 1931. So that was the first film in which she made her debut. Hmm. She she was really nervous about this film because she did end up hearing Carl Emily Jr. comment to one of the other executives saying that she had about, quote, as much sex appeal as Slim Somerville, which was one of her co-stars in the Mm. film. So she was already feeling anxious about her body, about the men around her, about her you know, future career, all this kind of stuff. Universal Studios renewed her contract for three months. She appeared in a couple of other small films. They lent her out to Columbia Pictures. They lent her out to Capitol Films. But after a year and six unsuccessful films, they decided not to renew her contract. So she decided that she was going to go back to New York, but actor George Arliss chose her for the lead female role in the Warner Brothers picture, The Man Who Played God. And for the rest of her life, she accredits him with her big break because um, he was the one who got her this first film that did well. About her performance, the Saturday Evening Post wrote, quote, she's not only beautiful, but she bubbles with charm. And they compared her to Constance Bennett and Olive Borden, who were like other very popular, beautiful actresses at the time. Warner Brothers ended up signing her a five-year contract because of this film. Mm -hmm. And as we mentioned, she stays at the studio for 18 years. Yeah, that is so crazy. Yeah. Um, I thought this was worth mentioning. In 1932, she married her first husband, Harmon Oscar Nelson, and the press immediately scrutinized their marriage because she made a lot more money than he did. He Mm -hmm. made about $100 a week, which today is about $1,885 compared to her $1,000 a week, which today would be about $18,850 a week. Hmm. I bring this up because this becomes a central part in a lot of the characters that she plays. And she is a person who ends up channeling a lot of her personal life into her works. Um, The next film that she does is Of Human Bondage, in which she played a very like vicious and scrappy kind of character. At this point in time, most actresses did not want to play these unsympathetic characters. And a lot of people had refused this role. But she thought it was a really good opportunity to show off what she could do and her range of acting skills. In this film, she insisted that the death scene be portrayed realistically. And she said, quote, The last stages of consumption, poverty, and neglect are not pretty, and I intended to be convincing looking. Which was really unheard of at the time. Most actresses wanted to die very beautifully, gracefully, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the film was a big success. She earned lots of praise. Life magazine wrote that she gave quote, probably the best performance ever recorded on the screen by a U.S. actress. And she thought that this would be kind of a jumping off point to get a lot better roles, but she was really disappointed when after this film, Jack Warner refused to lend her to Columbia Studios for It Happened One Night, which she really wanted to do. Mm. And he instead cast her in the melodrama Housewife. She did not get nominated for the film of Human Bondage. And we talked about this before, Mm -hmm. but there was a huge campaign because most of the public couldn't believe that she didn't get nominated for her work in this role. Norma Shearer was like one of the people who led this campaign. Um, And this whole thing after the nominees came out prompted the Academy to decide to do a write-in ballot, which backfired anyways. All of this stuff kind of led to the progression in the Academy hiring Price Waterhouse to count nominations and to deal with all that stuff so that they wouldn't nominate someone who wasn't, you know, on the ballot. Mm -hmm. The next film that she did was the film Dangerous, which was another really great film for her. 
E. Arnett Robertson wrote in the picture post, quote, I think Betty Davis would probably have been burned as a witch if she had lived two or three hundred years ago. She gives the curious feeling of being charged with a power which can find no ordinary outlet. Hmm. I love that quote about her. <laughs> I thought that was a really good like encapsulation of like her performances. Uh, she did end up winning the Academy Award for this role. Both she and the general public thought it was more of a consolation prize for the debacle about of human bondage. Mm-hmm. Most people thought she should have won last year. You know, it was chaotic. Also at this point, this is her first win of an Oscar. And she, to her deathbed, quotes that she was the first person to call it an Oscar, uh, saying that it reminded her of her husband. But the official statement of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences is a different story. Yeah. At this point, I wanted to talk about one of the most important things in her life, according to me, which is her first legal case. So in 1936, she was really convinced that her career was being damaged. She had done a bunch of lackluster films at this point. You know, she wanted to move up and up after doing Of Human Bondage and Dangerous. And so she was frustrated that Jack Warner was not giving her her films that could show off her acting chops the way she wanted. So she accepted on her own two films that were filming in Britain. Knowing that this was a breach of her contract, she fled to Canada to avoid the like legal ramifications and to avoid getting served. Hmm. And then she went to Britain. And when she got there, she took her case to a court in England, hoping that they would help her get out of her contract with Warner Brothers. In the opening statement of this legal battle, the person representing Warner Brothers, Patrick Hastings, urged the court to, quote, come to the conclusion that this is a rather naughty young lady and that what she wants is more money. He made fun of her description of the contract, uh, which she called, quote, slaverly. Uh, And he said that if she was being paid $13.50 per week, if anybody wants to put me into perpetual servitude on the basis of that remuneration, I shall prepare to consider it. Hmm. And he made light of her whole situation, trying to make it seem like it was all about money for her and not the like lack of freedom that she had in the contract. Mm-hmm. And Britain, the British press didn't support her at all. Um, they portrayed her as overpaid, ungrateful, all that kind of stuff. Later on, she tried to explain her viewpoint to a journalist saying that, quote, I knew that if I continued to appear in any more mediocre pictures, I would have no career left fighting for. Hmm. Which, yeah, I got that. I can understand why she would be up in arms about that. Her counsel presented her complaints, saying that some of the things that were included in her contract were that she could be suspended without pay for refusing a part, the period of suspension added to her contract, uh, and that she could be called upon to play any part within her abilities, regardless of her personal beliefs, Uh, that she could be required to support a political party against her beliefs, and that her image and likeness could be displayed in any manner deemed applicable by the studio. Mm -hmm. They had control of not only her professional life, but her personal life as well in this contract. When Jack Warner testified, he was asked, quote, whatever part you choose to call upon her to play, if she thinks she can play it, whether it is distasteful or cheap, she has to play it, quote. And he replied, quote, yes, she must play it. Uh, which was kind of shocking. She ended up losing the case. She returned to Hollywood. She was in a lot of debt. She didn't have any income at the time because she was in a bad place with Warner Brothers, Uh, but she tried to resume her career anyways. And as I talked about previously, Olivia de Havilland actually mounted a very similar case in 1943, and she won. Mm. But I think this is essential because she was the first person to do this. She was the first, not only woman, but just person to come up against her contract and say, no, this isn't fair. I didn't sell my soul to the studio. I want to be an actor because I love doing that and I want to create films, but I don't want to like have my entire life and my ability to perform stifled by these studios that think they can do whatever they want with me. Yeah, and it's interesting because this thought process like hit her in the middle of her contract, unfortunately. Yeah. Whereas for somebody like Carol Lombard, who ended up becoming a really successful independent actor outside Mm -hmm. of the studios, like in the late 30s at the same time. Yeah. It was at the end of her contract. So she had no problem moving on. She just didn't renew her contract and then you know, had her own career then. Right. Well, and it just goes to show on how history looks back at different women in Hollywood because Carol Lombard is allowed to have a graceful exit from her contracts and then pave this path to do what she wants to do. Betty Davis is seen as this angry, bitter woman who wants money and has to fight like hand over fist to get what she wants. 
but it just has to do with the timing of the situation. I mean, if your career is bombing and you want to move on and you think you have the chops to do it, you've proved yourself and they're not letting you. Well, and that's what's so scary about those contracts and why the studio system ultimately failed is that it would lock actors and other people into these contracts that are like five to seven years long because they're trying to capitalize on their popularity. But then, you know, people are not necessarily popular or at the height of their popularity (laughs) that long, or they change their minds after five years and like, or even after three out of five years. And Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, now you're stuck and you have no legal way to get out of it. Yeah. So thank goodness that doesn't (sighs) exist anymore. Yeah, exactly. It's very exhausting just talking about all this stuff. Anyways, I do think it paid off for her in a way because she comes back to Warner Brothers. She's, you know, got a tail between her legs she's being forced to do whatever but I think the public eye is now on her and Warner Brothers not only because of this scandal but because of the like academy stuff with her previous films people are watching her and they're watching Warner Brothers as well so they do give her a couple of good films over the next few years she immediately began work on Marked Woman in 1937 in which she played a prostitute which was another thing people didn't want to do but she you know was willing to do it and she also was contracted to do it and for her performance in this film she was awarded the Volpe Cup uh, at the 1937 Venice Film Festival hmm And then her next picture was Jezebel in 1938, which was directed by William Wyler. Mm -hmm. And she loved this experience. She uh, entered into a relationship with him, even though she was still kind of married at the time. Um, And she later described him as, quote, the love of my life. And she said that making the film with him was, quote, the time in my life of my most perfect happiness. Hmm. Nice. And she just continued to say nice things, even though they had a very terrible split later on. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The film was a massive success, Um, I would say mostly because of the duo, William Wyler, Betty Davis, sounds great to me. And her performance as a spoiled Southern belle in this film won her her second Academy Award. Mm -hmm. Now this, of course, as we talked about a little bit, led to speculation that she would probably play Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind, which was coming up. David Oselznick was not into the idea of working with her. Uh, Betty Davis mentioned and talked about her desire to play Scarlett. And when the radio did a poll, her name was the audience favorite for who they thought could play Scarlett O'Hara as they did the grand search for Scarlett. Werner offered to loan her out to Selznick as a part of a deal that would also have included Errol Flynn to play Rhett Butler and Olivia de Havilland. But Selznick did not consider Betty Davis someone he wanted to work with. Uh, He rejected the offer. And then unfortunately, Betty Davis said some mean things about Errol Flynn and how he should not play Red Butler at the time. Yeah, and if you remember before, Selznick had wanted Clark Gable basically from the beginning to do that film. Yeah. And so I feel like anything to do with (laughs) any of that would have thrown him also. Yeah. So at this point, she's been married to her first husband. He never was able to establish a career for himself and was feeling a lot He was in the entertainment industry? Yeah. Oh, okay. He just couldn't hack it you know yeah um and their relationship was failing she was also being unfaithful she had romantic engagements with other people whoopsie yeah whoopsie daisies and in 1938 he got evidence which you know is the way they did things back in the 30s (laughs) that she was engaged in a relationship with howard hughes and he immediately filed for divorce citing davis's quote cruel and inhumane manner She became extremely emotional during this time period. She was distressed about the whole situation, especially the publicity around it. And she was making her next film, Dark Victory. And she wanted to leave this film. She considered abandoning it until the producer, Halby Wallace, convinced her to take all of this rage, all of this despair and channel it into her acting. Uh, She decided to go with it. And this film ended up being one of the highest grossing films of the year. And the role got her an Academy Award nomination. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in later years, she cited this performance as her personal favorite performance. Hmm. Nice. Another like little anecdote around the same time, 1939, that I wanted to share uh, was when she was filming The Private Lives of Elizabeth in Essex. She played Queen Elizabeth I as like a kind of elderly version of her. She shaved her eyebrows and her hairline Mm -hmm. to do this role. Uh, Because as you know, the style was the very Mm -hmm. like far back set wig, whatever. So she does this because she's a committed actress. Um, And at the time she was visited on the set by actor Charles Lawton. 
And when they were chatting, she commented that she had nerve playing a woman in her 60s, kind of making fun of herself as an aging actress. You know, she wasn't in her 60s yet, but like... No, she was in her 30s. Yeah, (laughs) she's, you know, already kind of seeing the writing on the wall. She has a lot of insecurity about her age and her stuff like that. And to this statement, Loughton replied, quote, Never not dare to hang yourself. That's the only way you grow in your profession. You must continually attempt things that you think are beyond you or you get into a complete rut. Hmm. Which sounds exactly like him. Yeah. I love that. I was going to say it sounds like also something that somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio would say or like just based on the roles he takes to try to get his Oscar or like, you know, some of those other people who are deemed so serious actors today. Well, and I like this quote because... It just goes to show that you can't be an actor for the glamour and the beauty of it. And I think that she understood that. I think she was someone who was insecure about it. But I think that at the end of the day, she wanted to give a good performance and was willing to be as ugly, as nitty gritty as she needed to be to do it. And he was someone also that supported that kind of endeavor. He played a lot of ugly, bad guys. And so it's nice to like just kind of hear that sort of a conversation. Well, and it's interesting to think about too, because in the 40s, that's when Hollywood is sort of changing and allowing there to be films again that do have more grittier roles, more interesting storytelling Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. She held on to this advice for her whole career, and she often cited it as a jumping off point for her. Uh, In 1941, January of 1941, she became the first female president of the Academy. Yes. (laughs) I didn't even know that. But apparently, she antagonized the committee members so much with her brash manners and her radical proposals that uh, they forced her to resign. Yeah, I'll uh, (laughs) reference that in uh, the story of the making of this film. Oh, good. (laughs) She did not like the idea of being a figurehead. She wanted to do a lot of stuff. Uh, In 1941, uh, William Wyler directed her for the third time in Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes. Mm Mm-hmm. But at this point, they really clashed over the character, uh, which was a role that was originally played on Broadway by Tallulah Bankhead. And he kept encouraging her to emulate Bankhead's interpretation of the role. But Betty Davis wanted to make it her own. They, you know, could never seem to agree about it. She did receive an Academy Award nomination for this performance, but she never worked with William Wyler again. Mm. So then we get to World War II. She got greatly involved in the Hollywood humanitarian efforts at the time. Um, Right after the attack on Pearl Harbor, she spent most of 1942 selling war bonds. She sold $2 million worth of bonds in two days. Hmm. And so she just kept doing it. She didn't care. She also performed uh, for the Black Regiment as the only white member of an acting troupe that was formed by Hattie McDaniel. Mm, Nice. Which I thought was pretty cool. She performed uh, with Lena Horne and Ethel Waters. Nice. Yeah, pretty neat. Um, She also, one of the things that she was most proud of in her career was she, along with some other people, Cary Grant, uh, Joel Stein, opened the Hollywood Canteen, uh, which was open for a while. It opened on October 3rd, 1942. Uh, And it was a club that servicemen could go to to be entertained by Hollywood stars. Hmm. And they ended up making a film about it that she was in. And when she's talked about this time of her life, she talks about it as one of her proudest moments. She constantly made sure there were big names that would come and perform and that servicemen always got to meet them, that they were able to, you know, encourage them and reinforce their morale. And during this time, she also chose films to do that she thought would benefit the general public. And the other films she chose were things that were about the war, Watch on the Rhine by Lillian Hellman and Thank Your Lucky Stars, uh, which was a lighthearted, like, musical number filled movie, basically. Unfortunately, she did not have the best of behavior throughout her career. And so shortly after this point in time, um, she did the film Old Acquaintance in 1943, uh, which was the story of two old friends that deal with tensions when one of them becomes a successful novelist. She felt that her co-star, Miriam Hopkins, tried to upstage her throughout the whole film. Um, The director, Vincent Sherman, would recall intense competition and animosity between the actresses. And in her memoirs, she joked that she, quote, held nothing back in a scene in which she was required to shake Hopkins in a fit of anger. Hmm. A little bit, you know, physically aggressive. Uh, In 1943, her husband at the time, Arthur Farnsworth, this is a strange little thing but he collapsed while he was walking and he died two days later Hmm. which was very shocking and an autopsy revealed that he had had a fracture in his skull uh that caused him to then you know have this accident and then pass away uh so she had to testify 
uh, before the court to, to talk about if she had any idea of what could have happened to him, you know, if she had caused the injury, that kind of stuff. And eventually a finding of accidental death was reached. But she was extremely distraught about this whole situation. And she tried to get out of her next film, which was, was uh, Mr. Skeffington in 1944. But Jack Warner, who had already stopped production during the whole situation, persuaded her to continue. You know, her behavior throughout the filming was terrible. She was erratic. Uh, she was out of character. She refused to film certain scenes. She insisted that some of the set be rebuilt. She improvised dialogue, causing confusion among the other actors. And the writer, Julius Epstein, was called in to rewrite different scenes at her whims. Like, it was just chaos. And she was, you know, full diva mode. Hmm. And she talks about her own mental health issues later on. And she said, quote, when I was the most unhappy, I lashed out rather than whined, quote. And that was very evident throughout the rest of her career. Uh, and then in 1947, after her maternity leave, she gave birth to her daughter. And at this point in time, she became very obsessed with her baby. And she wanted to spend her time being a mother rather than acting. But she was pressured back into the film industry. And she ended up having a very tumultuous relationship with her daughter because of that. Mm. Um, they never ended up like reconciling. Producer Daryl F. Zanuck offered her the role of Margot Channing. And when she read the script, she described it as the best script that she had ever read. And within days, she signed all her contracts. She joined the cast and she went to San Francisco to begin filming. Anyways, um, I'll kind of stop there because I know that you have a lot to talk about with All About Eve, which is the point that we're up to now. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point, you know, she's in a kind of strange place in her career. She's not doing super well, but she is one of the highest paid people in America. Mm. She's, you know gotten this critical acclaim in the past that leads you to believe that there's something left to be desired. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I don't want to talk about her whole career now because she's got a lot left in her life. <laughs> yeah, she remained acting for a long time. Yeah, and not just like acting, but like doing stuff. Mm -hmm. So we'll talk about her some other time, but I have wanted to talk about her career for so long, especially since like throughout the 30s, she just, you know, had a lot of impact on the way that things were done. So I thought it was worth talking about. But uh, before we finish up, I just want to go over all of the Academy Award winners for this particular ceremony. Great. So for Best Motion Picture, All About Eve wins uh, for 20th Century Fox and producer Daryl F. Zanuck. Best Director goes to Joseph L. Mankiewicz for All About Eve. Mm -hmm. Another win for him. Best Actor goes to Jose Ferrer for Cyrano de Bergerac, uh, playing Cyrano in that. Best Actress goes to Judy Holliday for Born Yesterday. Best Supporting Actor goes to George Sanders for All About Eve. Oh, and just uh, on that Best Actress win, a lot of people say that it was really bad for them to lobby both of the lead actresses for All About Eve. And they yeah. think that's why she won, because one of them should have won. Definitely. But the fact that they were both nominated for Best Actress kind of canceled each other out and yeah. made the other woman win yep and it's a, a shame like they both were deserving of this award yeah <laughs> oh, man luckily at least her betty davis she has other awards that she's won so you know there's that best supporting actor goes to george sanders for all about eve and mm -hmm. he's another actor that we'll talk about sometime he's one of my favorite hollywood guys he was in rebecca as well mm -hmm. um and you may know his voice from several Disney films. Mm -hmm. Best Supporting Actress goes to Josephine Hall for Harvey. And again, it's another one of those situations. Two of the actresses from All About Eve are nominated. They both could have won this as well. Yeah. Another kind of split vote there. Best Screenplay goes to All About Eve, uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Best Story and Screenplay goes to Sunset Boulevard. Best Motion Picture Story, just the story, goes to Panic in the Streets. Best Documentary Feature goes to The Titan, The Story of Michelangelo. Best Documentary Short Subject goes to Why Korea, which is um, a film that is a series of newsreel footage that was put together to explain the war in Korea at the time. Mm -hmm. Best Live Action Short Subject One Reel goes to Granddad of Races. Best Live Action Short Subject Two Reel goes to In Beaver Valley. Best Short Subject Cartoon goes to Gerald McBoinboin. Oh, wow. Which I was like not looking forward to saying. <laughs> <laughs> Best scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture goes to Sunset Boulevard. Best scoring of a musical picture goes to Annie Get Your Gun. Hmm. And it's worth mentioning that one of the other nominees at this point in time for best uh, scoring of a musical picture is Cinderella. Yeah. 
the Disney film. As we've talked about, there wasn't a really great way to award animated films at Mm -hmm. this point in time. So Cinderella doesn't win very much, (laughs) Yeah, which is just the way it goes. Best original song goes to Mona Lisa from Captain Carrie USA, which I think is strange considering that Bippity Boppity Boo also got nominated but didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) Best original sound recording goes to All About Eve. Best art direction, black and white, goes to Sunset Boulevard. Best art direction in color goes to Samson and Delilah. Best cinematography, black and white, goes to The Third Man. Best cinematography, color, goes to King Solomon's Mines. Best costume design, black and white, goes to All About Eve, Mm -hmm. which it was definitely deserving of. And shout out to costume designer Edith Head Mm -hmm. and her illustrious career. We'll talk about her more, too. Best costume design in color goes to Samson and Delilah, also to Edith Head. Uh (laughs) She's making a name for herself. Best film editing goes to King Solomon's Mines. And best special effects goes to Destination Moon. Uh, There are a couple honorary awards this year. Uh, One is given to George Murphy for, quote, his services in interpreting the film industry to the country at large. He was an actor who became a politician, Mm. uh, mostly in the silent black and white era. But then he moved into current Hollywood as well. And so they, you know, give him an award for his work. Nice. And also to uh, Louis B. Mayer for, quote, his distinguished service to the motion picture industry. Uh Which I think is funny considering, like, he didn't really win anything this time, but, you know. Yeah. Doesn't really have anything to do with that. Just want to honor him over and over again. Yep. Best foreign language film goes to The Walls of Malpaga, which was a French and Italian film. They worked together on this one. Nice. And the Irving G. Thalberg Memorial Award goes to the producer, mm-hmm. Daryl F. Zanuck. Good for him. <laughs> it's always the producer of the best picture. Yes. <laughs> so anyways, that's what I have to share. Thanks for hanging in there on that long-winded uh, journey through Betty Davis's life. Mm-hmm. But, you know. She's an interesting character. Nice. Let's take a little break here, and then uh, we'll be back shortly. All righty. And we're back. So time for some facts about 1950, Uh, starting with some births. We have Jonathan Freeman, Sybil Shepard. John Hughes, Jerry Zucker, William H. Macy, William Hurt, Martin Short, Alan Silvestri, Robbie Coltrane, Ron Perlman, Jay Leno, Bill Murray, Randy Quaid, John Candy, and Ed Harris. And then some debuts, we have Marlon Brando, Carol Channing, Tippi Hedren, Piper Laurie, Sophia Loren, Rita Moreno, Jack Palance, and Peter Sellers. Some big ones there. And then some sad deaths, we have Walter Houston, of course, the patriarch of the famed Houston family, Ernest Lemley, who is the nephew of Carl Lemley, Sarah Allgood, who we've talked about before, Um, she was in How Green Was My Valley, and Al Jolson. Oh, man. All right. Um, In film in 1950, uh, as you mentioned, Cinderella debuts, becoming uh, Disney's most successful film since Dumbo, of course, and helping to dig them out of $4 million in debt. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's funny. As I was thinking about this year, I was like, it's been a long time since we've talked about a Disney movie. And like, even as you and I have talked about Disney stuff as we watched through them on our own time, this period was really rough. It's like, yeah. The Three Caballeros, Melody Time. Well, and not only did they lose a lot of animators to other careers, of course, because of World War II, but they've had a lot of problems yeah. with their animators. Not with their animators, with their company. Their relationship with yes. their animators. Yeah. Also, maybe because of that, uh, Walt Disney releases its first live action film this year, hmm. Treasure Island. That's their first live action film? Yep. Oh. 1950. Hmm. Uh, up to this point, of course, they had The Song of the South, which was live action and animation. Mm-hmm. So this is their first full live action film. The highest grossing film of the year, of course, is Cecil B. DeMille's super epic Samson and Delilah, starring Hedy <laughs> Lamar. Um, it's just a classic worth mentioning. It grossed a lot of money. Um, also this year is the third Emmy Awards, and this is the last year that they're given only to shows produced in L.A. County. <laughs> There are now other places where shows are starting to be produced. Um, And then we have our fifth Tony Awards 
this year, shortly after the 23rd Academy Awards in 1951. And the big players there are the Rose Tattoo and Guys and Dolls. Wow, Guys and Dolls is so old. I always forget that. Yeah. And the actors that are getting uh, awards that year are Claude Rains and Uta Hagen for Uta Hagen. Best Actor and Actress. Yeah. And then Robert Alda, father of Alan Alda, and Ethel Merman take Ethel home Merman. Uh, Supporting Actress Does and Actor do, Awards. Um, Annie Get Your Gun? Call Me Madam is what she won okay. for that year. Well, that's kind of crazy because she does Annie Get Your Gun this year too. The film version. Mm. So on to the film, All About Eve. Uh, this film had a budget of $1.5 million, and it grossed about $8.5 million. This is sort of like your average fare now leading into the 50s for like your run-of-the-mill big star picture as far as budget and gross. Um, and it was number nine at the U.S. box office in 1950, which is interesting because it was so popular and mm. it got such a claim that it wasn't any higher than that. So the origins of this story are pretty messy, as you might imagine, because it is a messy story. Yeah. So we have this actress, Elizabeth Bergner. Um, She's from Vienna, Austria. And her career-defining role was that of Gemma Jones in Escape Me Never. Um, This role was written for her by Margaret Kennedy. She played this role in London, then on Broadway, then in the film version, which landed her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress at... Uh, the 1935 and 8th Academy Awards ceremony, okay, which she lost to Betty Davis as Ooh, Joyce Heath in good, Dangerous, good, which good, 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 you good. mentioned. I love it. Bergner took pity on a waif-like girl who'd been stalking her during her next run on Broadway during the play, The Two Mrs. Carols. And this girl stood outside the stage door waiting to meet her desperately and um, Bergner gave her a job as her secretary, and then the girl began sabotaging her life, <gasps> trying to take it over for herself. Oh my gosh, are you serious? Penny's looking. That is <laughs> Penny. Can you believe it? Can you believe that, Penny? She woke up from her dead sleep <laughs> when she heard that. So that is one of the stories that helped influence this. Another story. Sorry, really quick. Was that a popular story? Was that something like people knew about? Or was that kind of like a industry only story? I will get there. Oh, okay. Another story um, for the origin of this was the rivalry of someone you also mentioned, Tallulah Bankhead. <gasps> and what? her then understudy, Elizabeth Scott, during the production of Thornton Wilder's The Skin of Our Teeth. Oh my gosh. So there was a big rivalry between them and Elizabeth Scott. There's rumors that she did various things to go on, hmm. like as the understudy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is a, a tale as old as yes. time. <laughs> yes. So Mary Orr, that takes us to her. She is an actress and a writer who was friends with Bergner and published a story in Cosmopolitan called The Wisdom of Eve which she then adapted into a radio play for NBC in 1949. Um, 20th Century Fox then purchased this story for adaptation rights from Orr for about $5,000, which is about $60,000 today. Um, She was not given screen credit for her short story, but she did receive a Screenwriters Guild Award for the original story, actually, which is kind of funny. So this takes us to uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, Um, He was actually already writing a film about an aging actress as Hollywood's main group of like golden age ingenues Mm. was getting to like age out of that era and role. Um, When he read Orr's story, he liked the twist that it could add to his. So he convinced Zanuck to buy it for him to incorporate into the plot. Um, When Mankiewicz was writing the script, he was writing it actually for Susan Hayward um, for the role of Margot, which... Funny, uh, the short story, her name was Margola Cranston. And so he changed the name to Margot Channing, which is much better. (laughs) Um, He kept most of the other characters with one major plot change to the story, making Margot and Bill, putting them at the start of their relationship. Um, In the original story, they are already married and have been married for a while. Oh, that's interesting. Um, It's a good storyline. It adds to her insecurity. Right. And he did that uh, for the purpose of adding the intrigue of Eve being able to break that up as well. Yeah, totally, totally. So if their relationship is not as established, it is just one more thing for Eve to wreck. Also, like, 
it gives him a chance to be a good guy in the film. Yeah. And he's a good character. Mm-hmm. Zanuck, uh, while casting, rejected Hayward because she was coming across as too young in the screen tests. Um, she was actually nine years younger than Davis. So, uh, yeah, just a little bit too young for the yeah. part still. Um, Marlene Dietrich was passed on because she was considered too German. <laughs> Gertrude Lawrence was passed on after her agent said she would refuse to smoke or drink in the film and that she would have to sing an unrequited love song somewhere in the picture. (laughs) That's a lot. (laughs) Um, Barbara Stanwyck, Joan Crawford, and Tallulah Bankhead were all too busy for the role. (gasps) Dang it. That would have been cool. Then, interestingly enough, since uh, you mentioned that uh, Davis was not able to play in It Happened One Night. Right. And Claudette Colbert played that. <gasps> Claudette Colbert was cast as Margot. Oh, no. Wow. So she has the role. Okay. Uh, moving on to some other actors and actresses. Uh, Jeannie Crane was cast as Eve, but had to drop out because she got pregnant. Ronald Reagan was the first choice for Bill Sampson. Margo's... Oh, my gosh. Ronald Reagan? Yep. Oh, my gosh. Um, and then it was offered to John Garfield, who we talked about mm. in Gentleman's Agreement, mm-hmm. um, before Gary Merrill was then given the role. Okay. Uh, Reagan's future wife, Nancy Davis, was in the running <laughs> for Karen. <laughs> it could have been a Reagan story. And oh, uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor fought really hard to try to get the role oh. of Phoebe. Um, oh, okay. Phoebe, yeah. Yeah. When really, Zanuck was actually auditioning her for Miss Caswell against Angela Lansbury. Wow. This is basically every woman... Uh, at this point then of course miss caswell went to the very young marilyn monroe who was Mm. still unknown at the time once they have all of that casting settled oh my um 10 days before filming claudette colbert hurts her back on another set and she cannot do the next film which is all about eve betty davis was finishing Betty davis do it the film (gasps) yeah no 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 her oh no no it could have been an all about eve in the all about eve no uh, Betty Davis was finishing up uh, Payment on Demand, and Daryl Zanuck called her. Uh, she thought this was a prank because she and Daryl Zanuck were not on speaking terms. Right. A few years before, as you mentioned, Davis was president of the Academy. <laughs> and when she resigned, Zanuck was really upset and had threatened her. Threatened um, her to not resign? Yes. He did not want her to resign because he had sponsored her Academy membership. Oh, <laughs> well, hmm. so he had threatened her and then it basically ruined their friendship and working relationship. Um, he basically also said, you'll never work in the industry again if you resign. Yeah, whatever. Well, because you're not another, doing like, your duties. I'm a producer and I own you. And yes, yeah, anyways, learned one thing, that's one thing Betty Davis will not tolerate he, being owned. He called her. Uh, he was desperate for her for this film. Because he was basically like, no one else is going to be able to to jump on board of this film and also like do a good job and you're perfect for this role. Mm -hmm. Of course, he hadn't tried to get her previously because they were in a feud. Um, So she had 10 days to prepare for the role. Um, In one of her meetings before shooting with Mankiewicz, he gave her a key to the role uh, that she carried with her and quoted many times throughout the rest of her career. And he said to her, She is a woman who treats a mink coat like a poncho. That's so true. And so she always just like had that in her mind whenever she was on camera playing as Margot. One thing that's funny about this, well, maybe funny, not funny. uh, You mentioned some of her previous relationships. Uh, She and Meryl couldn't stay away from each other during the filming of this. Naturally. Um, She was just coming off her third divorce, which then because she was free... (laughs) Uh, added a lot to her chemistry with him. Um, They ended up getting together during this film, and they married afterwards. Then they adopted a daughter together and named her Margot after her character. I was reading this, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's crazy town. Yeah, but Margot with a T, because they didn't want it to be too similar. But then they realized they weren't a good match for each other and then divorced. They later said, both of them, said that they thought that they were marrying each other's characters from the film. And they just like, once they realized they weren't the characters from the film, they were like, well, this doesn't work anymore. Anyone who's going through a high school theater program knows that the showmances never last. Yeah. It's interesting when 
after the film, she commented on her performance, Davis, and she said her husky voice was not really natural for her in the film. Sure. And she said it started because she had such high anxiety at the start of the film. Then she had to like keep the voice that way during the (laughs) filming. Um, And afterwards, a lot of people kept asking her if she was trying to pretend to be Tallulah Bankhead. Because she yeah. had a very deep and raspy voice. Oh my gosh. And Tallulah Bankhead's relationship with this film is very interesting and this story because when asked if this was about her because of also the performance uh-huh. was seemed similar to her, uh-huh. she would say no. Uh-huh. But then she didn't like when Mary Orr would deny that it was about her. She got really upset at Mary Orr saying that she didn't use her Tallulah Bankheads, hmm. like for inspiration. Because yeah. Mary Orr was like, nah, it's, it's my about my friend Bergner. Yeah. So it was like weird because she wanted it to be about her, but didn't want it to be about her. <sighs> I don't well, know. And like, to be fair, when something that crazy and kind of traumatic happens to you, how much do you want it out there in the public? Like, there are people that you probably tell that story to with like wild abandon, and then other people you don't really want to talk about it with. Like, mm-hmm. I can sympathize with that. Yeah. Uh, My last bit, I just wanted to talk about Marilyn Monroe a little bit, just because this is like one of the first major film roles for her. She's a cutie patootie. Yeah. She's really young still in this film. Uh, She's basically just still getting, cutting her teeth as an actor. Um, She spent most of her childhood in and out of foster homes. She was sexually abused a few times and molested as a child at her various foster homes. Uh, which turned her into a very shy girl and caused her also to develop a stutter due to anxiety and depression she was experiencing. And she was technically a ward of the state of California, which I didn't realize. Um, But she also lived with legal guardians. Um, And when they were relocated to West Virginia for a job, they were not allowed to take her with them because she was a ward of the state. That's so sad. Um, So to avoid going to live in an orphanage, she decided to just marry her neighbor's son, um, who was 21 years old. She had just turned 16. And when she like commented back on that time, she was like, well, I just wanted to just try on the housewife life. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But later she would say that she was just extremely bored of being a housewife. She just didn't really like it. Um, what 16 year old wants to be a housewife i don't know uh (laughs) she ended up going to work in a factory in van nuys during uh world war ii also because her husband was deployed she didn't have anything to do at home there she met david conover who was taking pictures of the female workers for the u.s army air force's first motion picture unit Um, he was sent there to take pictures to boost morale to show like see all the women doing all this hard work at home they would like advertise that to the men out fighting to hopefully make them feel good about what they were doing. After this, uh, once she realized she liked having pictures taken of her, she decided to quit working at a factory and try modeling. Hmm. I mean, I li- everyone likes having pictures taken. <laughs> I would quit too. <laughs> she went through a couple different modeling agencies and studios before uh, years later um, meeting and becoming the mistress of Johnny Hyde who at the time was the vice president of the William Morris Agency. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, That's the way to do it. Yeah. He helped her get her first notable film roles then in All About Eve and The Asphalt Jungle. And that one was directed by John Huston. Because of her success in both, Hyde then negotiated her a seven-year deal with 20th Century Fox. Um, But then he died of a heart attack only a couple days later, which was devastating to her. Hmm. Um, she was very, very close with him and very, like, always spoke pretty highly of him and was very glad that he was able to, like, break her into the yeah. acting side of things. Um, on set, Monroe was deeply afraid of Betty Davis. Um, yeah, I'd be too. <laughs> in their scene in the lobby, it took them take after take because she kept trying to get it right, even though she had only a couple lines in that scene. Oh, man. Um, Davis lost her patience with her and tried to confront her about just like getting it together and doing the lines. And then this added to Monroe's already building anxiety. So she excused herself to throw up several times to like, because of her nerves. And then after that, she came back and they did one more take. And then that's the one they ended up using. Poor thing. (laughs) And it's interesting because every, all the actors in this 
ended up commenting later on in their life on Monroe being in the film. Um, of course, she like skyrocketed to fame and became more famous than a lot of them. But they just were struck at how like insecure she was yeah. and how young and naive she was at the time. Hmm. Um, George Sanders described her personality as an actor without a writer, like huh. as a person. So he said, even then she struck me as a character in search of an author. She was very beautiful and very inquiring and very unsure. She was somebody in a play not yet written, uncertain of her part in the overall plot. As mm. far as I can recall, she was humble, punctual, and untemperamental. She just wanted people to like her. Wow. Well, and that goes to show how it's so easy for someone to come in and sculpt her into who she becomes. Well, and she desperately tried to make her acting better. She took class yeah. after class after class and like really tried to be seen as a serious actor. And she had a lot of skills. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting seeing her in this role because she's so young and like she's so raw and yeah it. like it just seems like there's untapped potential there that's unrefined and like she's not a star like the other women in the movie yeah she has like a different thing about her i mean and we would say she's young she's naive you know and if she was any other actor it would have it would seem really normal but the fact that it's you're looking at an unpolished Marilyn Monroe is very strange. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting because when you watch the film, you're like, oh, yeah, it makes total sense that then she would become so popular because, like, you see somebody who has a lot of potential and stands out. Yeah, and she's attractive. You look, you're drawn to look at her, not because of, like, her beauty, just because of, like, her magnetism. Yeah. Um, the, another, like, final thing I'm, I'll mention about this film is at the time of the film, they, so the award ceremony at the beginning of the film that they, like, bookend the film with is the Sarah Siddons Award. At the time of the making of the film, that did not exist. Huh. Sarah Siddons was a real Welsh actress. Um, so they just used her name for the film to, like, make this random award. Then in 1952, this society actually created this award, the Sarah Siddons <laughs> Award, um, which, funny enough, Betty Davis would go on to win later in her career, as well as Celeste Holm, who plays Karen in the film. <laughs> um, so just a really like funny thing that yeah. like, this award didn't exist, and they made it in the film, and then it did. That is sort of like the behind the scenes a little bit of this film. Um as we said, it's a really, really great film. Yeah. Um, it was pretty easy for them to make all around. They got along enough to make the film. Several, Celeste Holm did not like Betty Davis and didn't like working with her. But <laughs> Too bad. <laughs> they're actors and yeah. their relationship was very fun in the film. Exactly. Well, and uh, it... Uh, Betty Davis went on to say that she and Ann Baxter had a great relationship for the yeah, rest of their lives. Yeah, they very much enjoyed working with yeah, each other. and they were good friends for the rest of their career. It probably helped that they were the enemies in the yeah. film. <laughs> so then afterwards, they could be friends. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine someone like Betty Davis likes someone that she could be catty with and can take it, you know? Mm -hmm. And even though they're acting, it's another version of a showmance, you know? You can become friends with someone that way, just in the same way well and ann baxter had already had a really successful career up to this point she already has her own academy award win for best actress mm -hmm. and you know she doesn't have anything to gain or lose yeah. from this film like she's yeah. super popular already well and there's something to be said about you know these powerhouse female actresses who have so many of their own insecurities but are coming at their roles ferociously that I can see how that would be attractive and like you could respect that. Mm -hmm. So at the end of every episode, if you've been with us, you know the drill. We like to thank the Academy for <laughs> things relating to this film, this year in film, or this episode. What would you like to thank the Academy for this week, Kristen? I would like to thank the Academy for the wisdom and insight of actor Charles Loughton. And we only briefly <laughs> mentioned him, but I would just like to say to anyone who comes across a woman in her mid-30s who's playing a woman in her 60s and has shaved her head and her eyebrows off, <laughs> that <laughs> you should say exactly what he said, which is you got to take some chances. And if you don't, it's not worth it. Yeah. That's the way you talk to that person. Nice. Good job, Charles Loughton. <laughs> I'm a huge Charles Lawton fan, so I'll always thank the Academy for him. I would like to thank the Academy for Penny. For <laughs> what?
what? <laughs> for helping me take care of you while you were sick this week. Oh, my. I guess we can thank the Academy, but they don't know much about her yet. Well, we can also thank the Academy for things relating to the episode, remember? That's okay. what I always say. All right, all right. So thanks to you, Penny. I would like to thank the Academy for Scrappy Ladies. Uh-huh. I mean, I just, I, I admire Betty Davis. I don't care how ridiculous and troubled she is. And we've talked about other female stars throughout Hollywood history that have come up against odds much like her and Mm -hmm. you know what every woman is allowed to respond the way that they need to respond because especially at this point in time there is no right way to do anything so i thank the academy for her who decided to do things her way Mm -hmm. the same way that we thank the academy for carol lombard and for olivia de havilland and joan crawford and all these women who are given this crazy task of being in the public eye with no power, and they choose to make their own powers. And so I'm thankful for, well, I would like to thank the Academy for Betty Davis and the way that she lived her life, crazy as it may be sometimes. Yeah. And I I have thanked the Academy for this before, all the way back uh, in episode two. But I would like to thank the Academy again for the uh, all-powerful scene in front of a green room mirror. Uh, it was just like super fun. It's like a very common like trope in these sort of like entertainment based, like about the entertainment industry where like there's always these scenes of these women having these deep conversations or these, you know, interesting post show moments in a green room in front of a mirror. And I thought that opening the film Mm. like that scene with Betty Davis, like cleaning her makeup off Mm -hmm. and like, you know, putting all the creams on her face. It just like sets this film up for like what it's going to be. Yeah. And it's just so interesting watching her do that. And I don't know, it it really sets the tone for like those types of female characters doing a scene like this. Yeah. Uh, The previous scene, of course, was in the Broadway melody. (laughs) (laughs) When she got to just break down and like have yeah. an emotional moment. Yeah. And like, it's a vulnerable way to look at that kind of a thing. Yeah. Well, and I mean, kind of going off of that, I would like to thank the Academy for this film being a vehicle for four prominent female stars. Yeah. That is so remarkable, especially up to this point. I mean, there's lots of really great female roles that we've talked about, but it's usually a woman surrounded by men. And I loved that in this film. We got Betty Davis. We got Ann Baxter. We've got Celeste Holm. We've got Thelma Ritter. They're all prominent women. Most of the scenes are them. And it's awesome to get to see these scenes that are them not talking about men. They're Mm -hmm. living their lives, you know? Well, and then on top of that, there are a bunch of other women in the... There's the woman at the very end of the film. Yeah, that's a great role. That like, you know, it's like two minutes at the end of the film, but you know, you're walking away from the film thinking about her. Exactly. Then. Yeah, I just think and that is Ms. so Caswell. cool. And Caswell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of very good roles. Yeah. Well, and that'll do it. Uh, go and watch this film if you haven't already. Yeah, definitely. This is like top two for me of what we've seen so far. Yes. And then join us next week where, of course, we discuss the 24th Academy Awards and the 24th Best Picture winner in American in Paris. Thank you for tuning in to Thank the Academy. You can follow us on social media at Thank the Academy Podcast on Instagram and at Thank Academy Pod on Twitter. If you enjoy listening to the show, make sure to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and subscribe on your favorite streaming platform. The theme song was created by the one and only Noah Heisinga. Join us next week on Thank the Academy.